Well, as you may have heard, Peter's going to be out for the coming few weeks, and since no one can teach Genesis quite like he can, we thought we would take an intermission from that study and apply what we've learned in order to address some important issues that are getting a lot of press in our culture today. So the title of this mini-series is Engage the Culture Through the Lens of Genesis. And this morning, we'll see how the opening pages of Scripture inform this conversation, and in the coming weeks, we'll look at current issues such as homosexuality, the sanctity of life, and Islam. Well, let's begin by considering some headlines. The Boston bombers, the Chechen Sarnaev brothers, were discovered to be radicalized Muslims. This has brought the subject of Islam once again to the public attention. Thursday of last week, the Minnesota House voted to legalize same-sex marriage. The bill was signed into law by the governor on Tuesday night, and Minnesota became the 12th state in the U.S. to legally redefine marriage. A couple weeks ago, NBA player Jason Collins announced that he was gay, and the world stopped and celebrated his coming out of the closet. He even received a phone call of congratulations from the president. In response, ESPN commentator Chris Broussard created a controversy and received accusations of intolerance when he expressed his opinion that homosexuality is sin. On Monday, Philadelphia abortion doctor Kermit Gosnell was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder after his practice of delivering live babies and snipping their spinal cords with scissors was discovered. The conditions of his clinic have been appropriately labeled a house of horrors. Pro-life advocates cite this case as an illustration of the evil of abortion, while pro-choice individuals present this as evidence for the need for safe and clean abortion. Of course, abortion is never safe or clean. On Wednesday, Vermont became the third state in the union to legalize physician-assisted suicide. Last month, Judge Edward Corman of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York handed down an order forcing the FDA to make the abortifacient morning-after pill available without a doctor's prescription or parental permission to girls without any restriction on age. Judge Corman's order would open the door for girls as young as 10 or 11 to obtain the morning-after pill without any involvement by either a doctor or a parent. The same girl could not be given an aspirin in a school clinic without parental permission, but this federal judge ruled that girls and women of any age must be allowed over-the-counter access to emergency contraceptives. So how does a Christian interpret and respond to these issues? Uh, we are part of an ongoing conversation that is happening in the media and at the workplace in the college classroom and on Facebook. So what do you sound like when you engage those settings? What is informing your ideas? And are we getting our talking points and the tone of our speech from MSNBC or Fox News or from the pages of Scripture? This morning, we're going to look at the issue of worldview. 
A worldview represents the beliefs and convictions that inform the way someone interprets and responds to the world. What is right or wrong? And what is good for humanity? What should be celebrated and, and what should be opposed? These are the questions of worldview. You know, in the political arena, Democrats and Republicans tend to call each other stupid. So Bush is an idiot or, or Obama's a nitwit or whatever. Uh, but not only is this unkind, but it misses the point. It's not about intelligence, but about perspective, the lens that is being used to look at information. It's not about which team has the smartest people, but about how those smart people interpret reality through their worldview. Two very bright individuals can look at the same set of data and come to radically different conclusions and policy decisions. And this is because they are interpreting reality according to their political or religious ideals. Everyone has presuppositions, basic pre-commitments that determine your response to things that you feel are important. It's just a matter of whether or not you're willing to acknowledge them explicitly. You know, even those who go by the name secular, while they wish to present their perspective as value neutral, have commitments that are basically religious at their core. And so Douglas Wilson writes, the secular elite wants to act as though biblical Christians are breaking the rules by intruding purely religious concerns into an arena that ought to be entirely a-religious. Okay, you familiar with that accusation? They want to believe the problem is that Christians are appealing to a particular God, when the real problem is that they are appealing to a rival God. The issue is never no God or God, but rather the establishment God or the rival when Christians start to act in a way that threatens to reveal that there actually is an established and embedded God of the system, the reactions can be spectacular. So everyone has a worldview, a storyline that you follow that causes life to make sense and to seem worth living. The question is, which storyline? Do you read life along? What larger narrative do you see yourself set in that scripts out the role that your individual character plays? And what is clear is that when, when Christians engage the public square on these issues, our differences exist because we get off track at the very beginning. This is important to recognize. It's not just down the line when we begin to hash out the specifics. You know, sometimes we debate back and forth on particular matters without realizing that the wedge between us and the culture is much wider than we initially expected. We need to trace back the path to its beginning to discover the fork in the road, which brings us to Genesis. The storyline that the believer follows is the old, old story. God's work in the gospel spanning the testaments of Scripture. This is the Christian narrative, and it is introduced in the opening pages of the Bible. You know, we've been studying the first three chapters of Genesis, and these give us the foundational elements of a Christian worldview that inform the issues we're seeking to address in this class. And so this morning, we're going to look at five headings. 
God, creation, humanity, fall, and redemption. And an entire series could be given to each of these, but instead we're going to paint quickly with broad strokes so that the big picture comes into view before we begin to focus in on some specific issues confronting us today. So first, the heading of God. The presupposition of the Bible and of the entire Christian worldview is that there is a fundamental reality, a fundamental reference point that informs everything else. And this reality is personal. God exists. The opening words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the context in which the entire storyline of the Bible is set. And like a good introduction to a lively novel, we are notified of several things that are necessary in order for this story to make sense. This world... Everything seen and unseen has an absolute starting point, okay? Unlike the cyclical universes of Hinduism and the Eastern religions, there is a beginning to it all, and this beginning finds its origin in the one who has no beginning. In the beginning, God. There was just God. He's absolute, the great I am. One God whom we later find out eternally exists in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This God is triune. As Peter's been teaching us, this is revealed implicitly in Genesis and then with greater clarity in the New Testament. But this one God was not lonely. He didn't create everybody because he wanted somebody to talk to. You know, this is not the needy deity that most people in our culture assume. Some sort of unfulfilled dictator who demands worship because he has self-esteem problems and places unbearable burdens on people. That's what comes to a lot of people's minds when we use the word God. But no, this, this God was eternally happy in himself in the fellowship of his own triune being. And this God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, which is shorthand for everything. Out of the overflow of his pleasure, he created. He chose to share his joy with others, his bounty, and he made everything out of nothing. All by his spoken word. He speaks things into existence. God merely says the word and there are planets and molecules and oceans and cell plasma and whales and centipedes and koala bears and fungus spores and human beings like you and me. All of these, as Psalm 8 says, testifying to the glory of their Creator. They form a collective witness with a uniform message that God exists and that He is worthy of our praise. You know, one of the first things that we find out about God is that He speaks. By the third verse of the Bible, we encounter, and God said. In fact, the very existence of Genesis itself as a text 
informs us that God communicates with us. He is a relational God because of his triune nature, and he has determined to communicate with his creatures. He is a God who graciously reveals his nature and purposes with humanity. He's given this revelation in the created order, what we might call general or natural revelation, but he has most clearly revealed himself in his written word, the Bible. So here's the starting point for the conversation. Here's where we get off track. This is the fundamental question. Is there a creator who has designed us? And if so, has he communicated that design to us? Is there a God who has revealed his will, how we're meant to live? And if so, where has, where has he done so? You see, it's not a matter of who's a bigot or who's unloving, but is the Christian story true? Hath God said? And by the way, it's not enough to just say it isn't true. You have to justify your own story, your own worldview. This is what Genesis informs us. Glenn Moots writes, This is a God who deliberately speaks, in, speaks to persons in order to provide moral imperatives, not simply a being existing for inspiration or contemplation. You know, the existence of, the percentage of atheists on this planet is pretty small. Uh, most people acknowledge a being who exists for inspiration or contemplation. But the God of Genesis is much more than that. He is a sovereign Lord. God speaks authoritatively to all matters. Nothing is outside of the realm of his concern or interest. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is no square inch in all of creation over which God does not declare mine. God is not indifferent about anything. And as the creator of all things, he is, to say the least, qualified to address all things. This applies to the person of Christ as well. People are generally willing to have a Jesus who meets some of their felt spiritual needs. You know, in the cultural conversation, very few disagree with Jesus' importance, his significance, but what they do not want is a Jesus who is Lord over all of their modern concerns, let alone their basic impulses and desires. They don't want Jesus to go there. You know, we have scientists and psychologists for that, sociological studies and the talk shows that present them. But is Jesus smart enough to address the concerns of postmodern America? And has he spoken to us? Dallas Willard was a Christian philosopher who went home to be with the Lord last week. And reflecting on the two natures of Christ and speaking with reference to his divine mind, he made these statements about Jesus' intelligence and his authority as Lord. He, he writes, at the literally mundane level, Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to make it wine. That knowledge also allowed him to take a few pieces of bread and some little fish and feed thousands of people. 
He could create matter from the energy that he knew how to access from the heavens right where he was. He knew how to transform the tissues of the human body from sickness to health and from death to life. He knew how to suspend gravity, interrupt weather patterns, eliminate unfruitful trees without saw or axe. He only needed a word. Surely he must be amused at what Nobel Prizes are awarded for today. Saying Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate in saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice. He is brilliant. He's the smartest man who has ever lived. He is now supervising the entire course of human history while simultaneously preparing the rest of the universe for our future role in it. Listen to this. He always has the best information on everything and certainly on the things that matter most in the human life. You know, it might sound simple and silly to say, but Jesus has an informed opinion about the things that we face today. And he's given us that opinion in Genesis to Revelation Well, in Genesis, we quickly move from the fact of the existence of the triune God, the God who is there, as Francis Schaeffer would refer to him, to the reality of creation. If this universe is a creation, and it's not just an improbable accident, then there is design and order to it. By the way, this fact is inescapably evident. Scientists such as Michael Behe and William Dembski and Stephen Meyer have developed empirical and mathematical processes for detecting the presence of intelligent design in the natural world. But consider the alternative for a moment. If there's no God, no creator, if our existence is merely accidental. We are just a collection of molecules and chemicals that have happened to become arranged in a certain way. Then our lives are ultimately meaningless. Ultimately, the universe does not care about us. We are a blip on the radar of a vast and expanding space. And the suffering that we experience, which cannot be called evil, but it's just the way things are, it's just the way the world works, is without purpose or hope. And arriving at truth in any of these matters is not inherently valuable. As a friend of mine has said, the corpse of the atheist Bertrand Russell has no advantage over the corpse of the great preacher George Whitfield. Who cares who's right or wrong? Who cares what is loving or unloving between matter and motion? The very concept of love is nonsense in an atheistic world. It's just chemicals firing in a brain that is developed by random evolution. It's absolutely meaningless. But if God exists, and He's the one who made us, then that changes everything. We have a wise and loving 
Creator. We are here for a reason. There is meaning and purpose to our lives. And those of us who've come to know Christ have discovered much reason to live. The phrase, let there be, that we find again and again in Genesis 1, tells us that God has expressed His intentions in creation. God made the world in a certain way, and He's made you and I a certain way. Now, as we'll learn in a moment, the fall has warped things a bit, so they don't always function according to their original design. There is a, there is a curse that has descended upon this land. But that hasn't taken away the blueprints. This means that there is a natural and an unnatural way to pursue things, actions that go against the grain of creation and actions that operate according to the design of creation. By the way, those are the two words, natural and unnatural, that Paul uses in Romans 1 when he refers to homosexuality and other sins that suppress the truth that God has clearly revealed in nature. But God's order in creation means that we find true happiness in functioning according to the intent of the one who made us. This is true freedom. I mean, that would make sense, right? The book of James refers to God's law as the perfect law of liberty. It is no more a burden or a hindrance than are the laws of physics that allow a bird to fly or the instruction manual for crafting an airplane's wings. This is the life of freedom you were designed for, so heed God's word and experience flight. There's a pattern to Genesis 1. God says, let there be, and it is so. And then he looks upon creation and he declares it to be good. Okay, this is, this is part of the Christian worldview. Created things are good things. We reject any form of Gnosticism that calls the physical into suspect. Now, contrary to some portrayals of Christianity, believers do not view the physical realm with a raised eyebrow. Genesis 2.25 writes, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's original creation. All of the glory of sex and none of the shame. Sex is not taboo to God. It's His idea. His invention. Now, unlike some biblically illiterate college papers, sex was not invented by the fall of Adam and Eve. No, be fruitful and multiply was God's command. So physicality is good. Sexuality is good. Marriage is good. Procreation is good. Pleasure is good. Food is good. Amen? Popeye's fried chicken is good. Bluebell ice cream is good. Earthly life and happiness are good. These are not ultimate things, but they are good things. Sin has allowed all these things to become stained, to be twisted into weapons and fashioned into idols. But God is restoring them to their original purpose. Let's look specifically at the creation of 
humanity. First man is a living soul. Chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul. Genesis presents this two-stage creation of man to illustrate that to be a human being means to have a body and a soul. This is the consistent biblical testimony. We are not merely biochemical machines. There's more to me than my biology. There's more to me than what can be scientifically assessed and predicted. I am a body-soul complex. I'm a holistic being, for sure. The physical components of my existence are important. And as we saw from the goodness of creation, they are not to be embarrassed about or to be dispensed with, but they do not exhaustively define me. There is a spiritual order to my existence, an invisible realm that influences who I am. They may kill the body, Jesus says, but they cannot destroy the soul. You can take away my body, but you haven't taken away me. And ultimately, the Christian hopes for a restored body and a new heaven and a new earth. And and here's why we note this. This is why it's significant for this conversation. This means that genetic and biopsychological accounts for human behavior, if accurate, only tell part of the story. Human beings are undeniably spiritual beings. When we encounter brokenness and suffering, something hurts in our souls that won't show up on litmus paper. We are made for more than what matter can contain. This is because we are a living soul. So we seek to meet the needs of people's souls. This biblical anthropology influences two of the major issues we'll look at in this class, sexuality and the sanctity of life. And we'll see why in the, in the coming weeks. But Jonathan Lehman, in his interesting article, Love and the Inhumanity of Same-Sex Marriage, writes, it is inhumane to morally evaluate people as if they are animals whose instincts define them. As if merely our biological account determines our actions. This is true ultimately because we are made in the image of God. Chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. This is the crowning feature of God's creation. In the Christian storyline, there is dignity to every human being. Again, consider the alternative stories. In other religions, the creation of man is an accident of the gods, the overflow of some sort of celestial war among rival deities. In the Darwinist story, man is essentially indistinguishable from any other plant or animal on earth, evolved from a process of random mutation and natural selection. 
more complex, but not more morally significant than the amoeba. But in the Christianity, we are not only created with intentionality, but we are crowned with dignity. Every person, regardless of age, race, gender, religion, or perceived sexual orientation is equally valuable before God. You see, the Darwinist account of humanity doesn't have a basis for telling us that ethnocentrism is wrong, that homophobia truly defined is out of place. The very ideals the secular world celebrates have no basis in a secular world view. But Christians have a theological justification And on top of that, a grace motivation to show love and compassion to every human being on the planet, including, by the way, those who are still in the womb. And this image of God is particularly expressed in humanity's creation as male and female. Verse 27, chapter 1, So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I know Peter's done an excellent job in explaining how the Trinitarian nature of God is stamped upon the complementary creation of men and women. But here we should note that we receive our gender by design. Okay, the, the postmodern culture teaches us that gender is a social construct or something that is just felt and chosen by the individual and that it is as changeable as the color of Dennis Rodman's hair. But God designed maleness and femaleness and all that entails. It's not just limited to sexuality, by the way. And he made man with his roles and woman with her to each other in marriage to complement one another and to be oriented toward the other, that which is unlike the self. This is true and beautiful diversity. God forms Eve from the rib of Adam, dividing flesh into two, making distinction between them and then reuniting the two into one flesh, forming a more perfect union, to quote the preamble of the Constitution. So these important gender distinctions and sexual identities are threaded into the very fabric of humanity. They are not incidental. And sexual attraction to sameness that is homosexuality, that champions the name of diversity is actually an exchange of the diversity of God's creational design for something monolithic. The profound mystery that Paul referred to of two opposite genders joining together in one flesh, the comprehensive union that reflects the love of those as different as Christ and the church is not displayed and the romantic affection of a woman for a woman or a man for a man. You know, if I can get away with saying this, the sexual revolution in its attempt to be exotic is actually quite boring. Finally, man stands 
in a covenantal relationship with God. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Again, Peter's already taught us about the covenantal structure of this command. But in Adam, all of humanity is represented here. All of his posterity was there, so to speak. And so every human being is in a covenantal relationship with God. Everyone is bound to obey him. The covenant of works did not stop short at Genesis 3. God's law is universally binding upon all humanity. We are all accountable to him, to the moral code he has written upon our consciences and clearly revealed in Scripture. This means that it is legitimate to appeal to biblical authority with anyone we're talking to in the public square. Christians should not be embarrassed to cite what God has spoken in Scripture. It may not always be persuasive. It may be dismissed as Bible-thumping, to use Bill O'Reilly's phrase, but it is not out of place. You know, as we've seen, everyone responds to these issues through the lens of their worldview. Everyone quotes their Bible, though they don't always realize it. But we have the confidence that when we quote ours, what we are saying is true. In fact, we learn from Romans 1 that everyone knows this. Everyone knows God. In their heart of hearts, they perceive His nature and character, but suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This brings us to the fall. This is a significant chapter in the biblical story. God's Word is questioned and then contradicted. A lie, an alternative story is presented and believed. Adam and Eve abandoned the perfect fellowship and enjoyment they had in the garden in an attempt to grab for autonomy. In creating them in His image, God had made them like God, but they wanted to be like God in another sense. They wanted to be their own God, determining their own identity and purpose independent of the one who lovingly formed them. This is the fall of mankind. And it is a downward fall. You know, one liberal theologian has written that when man fell, he fell upward. That it was the beginning of the progress of the human race toward liberation. That is demonstrably not the case. Rather, when man fell, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism reads, he fell into a state of sin and misery. And we feel this. Fifth century theologian Augustine writes, by craving to be more, man becomes less. By aspiring to be self-satisfying, he fell away from him who truly satisfies. We are a broken people. We are all corrupt by 
nature. By the way, that's not just about the people out there in the world, <laughs> but the people in here. Now, Christians should never give the impression that the church is for good people and the world is where all the bad people are. No, we are a messed up people. This is a hospital for self-inflicted injuries. And we are being restored by grace. And when the Times posed the question to several authors asking, uh, what's wrong with the world? The Christian writer G.K. Chesterton replied with this brief essay, Dear Sir, I am, end quote. <laughs> or to paraphrase the Pogo comic strip, we have met the enemy and it is I. And this fall extends to every component of our identity. This is pervasive depravity. Nothing is unaffected. Nothing is left unstained. Sin, sin is more than just right or wrong action. It affects our feelings, our thinking. Our desires can be sinful. Our intellect can have a sinful inclination. This is what the reformers referred to as the noetic effects of the fall. Ideas are not morally neutral. You know, the great philosopher of our day, Sheryl Crow, sings, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. That's the worldview du jour. If it feels good, it must be right. But our feelings are fallen feelings. This is the problem with the born this way mentality, iconicized by Lady Gaga, one question people often ask is, why would, God God, why would God make people gay if they shouldn't fulfill their desires? But as we've seen, there's more to the narrative than just the way that God has made us. There is creation, and then there is the fall. We are born a certain way. We are born with fallen bodies and souls. We need to be redeemed. Jonathan Lehman, again, writes, it is inhumane to equate a person with the fallen version of that person, as if God created us to be the fallen versions of ourselves. But this is exactly what same-sex marriage asks, asks us to do. It asks us to publicly affirm the bad as good, to institutionalize the wrong as right. Well, let's talk about the glorious way that God has made right what was wrong, redemption. Amazingly, the Christian worldview doesn't end at the fall. It should, but it doesn't. It is a redemptive story. There is good news for sinners like you and me. From the moment of the fall, God moves toward mankind to restore them. Adam and Eve attempt to cover their shame with fig leaves. And this kind of self-atonement is our characteristic response to deal with our guilt. But God finds us hiding in the garden and He asks us mercifully direct and pointed questions. Like Adam, we shift the blame. 
Or like the woman at the well, we change the subject. But the Lord's holy and loving gaze sees right through it. He won't allow our evasions. He addresses our need head on. Only sacrifice will remedy this situation. Only blood spilt will clothe us. Only the bruised heel of the woman's seed will crush the head of the snake. This is the Christian story. It is a true fairy tale. And I've heard it said that the Bible could be summarized as kill the dragon, get the girl. Jesus comes. That's what he does. He defeats the enemy and rescues his bride. For this reason, the Son of Man was sent to destroy the works of the devil. Not only to destroy them, but after breaking them apart, to mend them back to their original purposes. And this Christian salvation includes justification, the clothing in the righteousness of Christ, but it also includes sanctification and glorification. A new humanity in a new heaven and a new earth. God restores the whole person in Christ. He doesn't merely forgive us of our sin and then leave us in our sin. No, He tells us, go and sin no more. And then He provides the power of the Holy Spirit for us to walk in repentance as we await the redemption of our bodies. This is why any position that says that sinners can never change, that they are to be permanently defined by their sin, is an anti-redemptive worldview. It's not the beautiful story of Christianity. Frederick Beekner writes, The gospel is bad news before it is good news. It is the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. That is the tragedy. But it is also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. That is the comedy. And yet, so what? So what if even in his sin the slob is loved and forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and of his slobbery is that he keeps turning down the love and forgiveness because he either doesn't believe them or doesn't want them or just doesn't care? In answer, the news of the gospel is that extraordinary things happen to him. Just as in fairy tales, extraordinary things happen. Zacchaeus climbs up a sycamore tree, a crook, and climbs down a saint. Paul sets out a hatchet man for the Pharisees and comes back a fool for Christ. It is impossible for anybody to leave behind the darkness of the world. He carries on his back like a snail. But for God, all things are possible. That is the fairy tale. Altogether, they are the truth. But to preach the gospel is not just to tell the truth, but to tell the truth in love. And to tell the truth in love means to tell it with concern, not only for the truth that is being told, but with concern also 
for the people it is being told to. And that's how we engage the culture. We engage the culture redemptively. We bring the hope of the gospel. Now that requires diagnosing the problem that the gospel addresses. And so when our culture calls what is cancerous good and celebrates it, we need to lovingly state that it is destructive. But it is always so that the healing mercy of Christ can be presented. This is not about moralism. This is not ultimately about family values of the religious right. This is about the gospel of glory. This is the Christian story. It is a beautiful story. It's worth treasuring and defending. So this is the Genesis worldview. In the coming weeks, we'll look at specifics. There's a schedule in your notes. Next week, May 26, we'll look at sexual by design, God's plan for marriage and sexuality. June 2nd, homosexuality, frequently asked questions. June 9th, the image of God and the sanctity of life. And June 16th, a law and the God of Genesis. And if you have any questions that you'd like us to address about any of these issues during this series, please don't hesitate to let us know. Just send me an email or come talk to me afterward. We'd be happy to try to give some air time to that as well. Uh, Let's pray as we conclude. Lord, we are your people gathered together because we love these things. We love this story. This true, tall tale of how you have rescued us of how you've made us with care and intentionality and yet in our depravity we have turned from you and rejected you, celebrated our fallen conditions and yet you sent your son Christ to redeem us. Lord, even now we are being restored by you, Lord, in our affections, in our actions, in our thinking. We want to increasingly be brought into conformity to what you are like. So Lord, help us by the power of your Spirit. Lord, help us to understand these things. Not only to understand them, but to be changed by them so that we can be a light in this world of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.